Welcome to episode 180 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Our interview today is with Jeremy Rabkin, who's the professor of law, uh, but not a lawyer. Is that right, Jeremy? That is right. Oh, uh, professor of law the at the – of both worlds. Yes, sir. At Antonin Scalia School of Law at uh, uh, George Mason. Uh, and he's going to be discussing his new book, which he wrote with John Yu, entitled Striking Power, How Cyber Robots and Space Weapons Change the Rules for War. That'll be fun. Uh, and I'm hoping, uh, Brian uh, Egan, can you stick around for this? Uh, excellent, because uh, um, otherwise uh, the uh, forces who believe in uh, uh, the law of war will not be represented. Uh, and uh, for the news roundup, we'll have Maury Schenk. Uh, who's former managing partner at our London office and now graduated to advising us on occasional technology and cybersecurity issues as well as running several other careers of his own. Uh, and Brian Egan, who you already heard, uh, new, a relatively new Steptoe partner in our international practice and former State Department legal advisor. And I'm Stuart Baker. You've gotten sick of hearing how many times I've left Steptoe to join the government, uh, so I'm not going to repeat it. Why don't we jump right in? We have some actual law to talk about, at least briefly. Uh, it will, you know, this is sort of like eating your broccoli. Yeah. The D.C. Court of Appeals has ruled on whether you can use a stingray, which is basically a, uh, a device that simulates a cell tower uh, and uh, hooks up to nearby phones, gets them to explain where they are exactly. And uh, obviously, if you're trying to find somebody and you have a cell phone number, it's a great tool. Uh, uh, the guy that the D.C. police were trying to find had raped two women at knife point and stolen their phones and uh, uh, in a sign of just how sophisticated he was, left them turned on and gave them to a girlfriend. Uh, uh, but unfortunately for uh, the D.C. police and for the women whom this guy raped, uh, uh, they didn't use the stingray to find the women's, uh, the raped women's uh, phones, which, of course, they could have done with consent. Instead, they went looking for uh, the defendant's uh, uh, phone uh, and found it. And the D.C. Court of Appeals said, oh, you need a warrant for that. Uh, and uh, it was two to one. Uh, there were Two, uh, majority opinion, uh, uh, you know, two, uh, separate opinions in the majority, but basically the argument was location is really important, uh, and no one would willingly give it away to the cops, even though we willingly give it away to pretty much everybody else, uh, uh, and therefore, uh, you had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, the, um, the majority was absolutely determined that this guy should get get off. They would not even give the D.C. police a, uh, a good faith uh, uh, immunity from uh, uh, suppression. Uh, uh, so, uh, nor would they say, uh, yeah, if you obviously, if it, since the guy <laughs> was caught with his girlfriend and all the stolen phones, if they had just picked the other phones, they could have uh, gotten him. The court said, no, that's not the, that's not inevitable discovery. That's just an alternative approach. You should have tried it. Uh, so that's, uh, um, uh, you know, DC Court of Appeals is not, um, God's gift to jurisprudence, but, uh, it's a, uh, 
it's a bad sign uh, for people who think warrants shouldn't be required for uh, the use of stingrays. So that's that's where we are there. Uh, and uh, uh, in other kind of quasi-law, um, the European Union Commissioner for Justice uh, um, Jarova came to uh, Washington, met with the uh, Secretary of Commerce to talk about uh, the state of the uh, privacy shield and um, obviously came to say uh, things are looking pretty good. Of course, we can't give you any more than a C plus, but, you know, that's a passing grade. Uh, uh, and that's pretty much what she said. Um, uh, Maury, uh, this means that the uh, principal threat to the privacy shield is going to be in the courts, not uh, at the commission, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the statement that came out of this was really short and happy. And I think what it reflects is that the people who have bones to pick weren't the ones at the table. The people at the table are, um, you know, are, are interested in upholding the privacy shield. Those are the agencies who negotiated it, although, of course, we've had a change of administration in the U.S., but I think there could be some big complaining from Europe, and the big issue the Europeans have is apparently intelligence use of European data, but of course to list, you know, to reduce that, you'd have to have different rules under U.S. law for European data, and that's not going to fly. It wouldn't have flown probably in the Obama administration, and it won't fly in the Trump administration. So there could be some fireworks ahead, I think, uh, yes, in the courts, but also if some other EU bodies, like the Article 29 Working Party, press this harder, um, there could be some fights ahead. Yeah, but they, they don't negotiate with the U.S. It's the Commission that negotiates with the U.S., and the Commission wanted not to have a confrontation over this. I think this is this could be the Trump effect. Uh, they said, uh, you know... Uh, uh, this is an administration that might actually call our bluff uh, on uh, uh, cutting off data flows. Maybe we should just take what we got from the Obama administration and try to hang on to it rather than uh, pushing our luck. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It, um, certainly the commission would like to keep this, uh, the privacy shield alive. I think it's good for both European and U.S. businesses. Um, but if, you know, if the Article 29 Working Party and the Parliament and uh, possibly the Council get pissed off about this, I don't know. But I think it, for the moment it's stable unless the courts uh, do something um, dramatic, which they, they could well do. They could. I think it's also interesting the the extent to which the new U.S. administration has continued to engage with the commission on these yeah, issues. Yeah, I was surprised to well, – I think it's a business thing. I, I think Ross, who may not have had much uh, involvement in this, heard from business that this is really important to us to keep it alive. And he said, okay, so we'll do that. And it, it, he's not being asked to make new concessions. He's just being able uh, asked to uh, ratify Obama administration uh, uh, concessions. Uh, which mostly affect the intelligence community, if anybody. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, deciding not to pick mm -hmm. this fight was the uh, the critical mm -hmm. decision in the Trump administration, and it appears uh, in the European Commission. Yeah, and just having Ross, Secretary Ross, personally involved in this is somewhat of a statement. Uh, maybe, yeah. as you said, Stuart, because the business community has been telling him it's really important, but also just the acknowledgement that this is going to be kind of an ongoing process. This was not a one-shot 
last administration signs a deal, this is going to be something that the two sides need to continue to talk about, seems implicit in the fact that the, they've continued to meet as they have. Yeah, uh, but I, it's not often I get to call the uh, Trump administration weenies, but uh, <laughs> that's what it looks like. They're weenieing out on this. Uh. It's a voluntary program for the, for the 2,400 participating U.S. companies. It's a voluntary program, so nothing's being shoved down anybody's throat on the U.S. side. Well, it's voluntary for them. That's fine. Uh, and, and if that's all they wanted, that would be great. But they wanted assurances about how we run our intelligence programs. Uh, and they got them, and they got them based on decisions uh, in the Obama administration that I thought were, you know, weird at best. Uh, uh, sort of saying, yeah, we're going to recognize um, a, a right to privacy on the part of our targets uh, abroad. Uh, uh, we're not going to use intelligence for uh, purposes uh, that might be considered discriminatory. I, you know, th- these were. Um, Brand new doctrines for the intelligence community, uh, and I'm sure they found a way to reconcile intelligence collection with that, but every time you create a new set of restrictions, uh, you run the risk that uh, in the future you're going to discover that it actually binds you in a significant way. You know, when we decide to disclose that uh, Vladimir Putin is gay, uh, you know, it could be discriminatory. All right. Um, (laughs) You heard it here first. Um, We have a new uh, head of the office that is the reorganized office on cyber issues, which is basically a combination of the old office that did the uh, WTO negotiation, not the WTO, the uh, IC, uh, uh, the WRO, right, Mm -hmm. World Radio Conference uh, uh, negotiations and the ITU negotiations uh, and also did cyber. Um, And they've all been stuck together, considerable pain and angst associated Mm -hmm. with putting the cyber uh, office that used to be headed by uh, Chris Painter into that office, which is now headed by a deputy assistant secretary. So they are now reporting to a deputy assistant secretary, whereas before deputy assistant secretaries probably reported to Chris Painter. Um, The guy who's got the overall um, set of responsibilities, a fellow named Rob Strayer, who has been involved in intelligence and uh, uh, terrorism issues for a long time. He was at the Bipartisan uh, uh, Policy Commission, which is sort of the 9-11 Commission, uh, privatized. Uh, He's been the general counsel of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee uh, um, and is now taking over to run all of those. Uh, Reasonably able guy. Uh, uh, Do you know him, Brian? I do not know him personally, no. Do you you have views on the um, reorganization? Um, I think... My, my personal view is this is not a bad thing. I mean, if you're a, a lot of folks at the State Department, um, I, I think, are actually supportive of changes to uh, the structure of the State Department, which brings some of these envoy functions more in line with the 
regional and functional focus that has traditionally been how the State Department's been organized. And I think that this announcement suggests, one, you've got a serious person running this entity, and two, it's now placed well within the existing structure of the State Department. So I think one one thing that was peculiar about an envoy position is you, you said that uh, deputy assistant secretaries reported to Chris Painter. I think really nobody reported to Chris Painter, right. and Fair that's enough. kind of the, yes. the the problem that a number of people saw with the number of special envoys. They were kind of floating out there in in cyberspace, if you will, uh, without a clear chain one way or another. And this this changes that. Yeah. So he was as important as the secretary thought he was. Uh, yes, basically. yes. Uh, I, and uh, the problem is that the State Department's littered with offices that the secretary, four secretaries back, used to think was important and nobody does mm-hmm. now. So, uh, and it's hard to get rid of them except in this, this massive way. Uh, um, the criticism is EB, the Economic Bureau, is not the place for cyber issues which have lots of national security implications. I don't I don't agree with that criticism. I think EB has a lot of other national security responsibilities. They do economic sanctions, which mm-hmm. are driven by U.S. national national security, just to name one. Um, and I think that the key is not which bureau, but does that bureau have good people who know these issues, and do they have enough oomph at the top of the State Department to really um, make sure that policy is getting implemented in, in a sensible way? So I assume Rob could be made an ambassador at any time if they wanted to kind of goose his uh, uh, prestige? Uh, th- theoretically, yes. Not a Senate-confirmed ambassador, but, uh, you know, that would that would be a different process. But um, uh, he could be – there are other ways to, to give him a title if that was desired. All right. Um, there was a hack that was – Broke just as we were going uh, uh, to uh, on the air last week, uh, uh, and I, I'm I'm really unsure about the the name. Uh, uh, it looks like CC Cleaner, but you when you look at it closely, it's clearly that the name of the uh, product is C Cleaner. Um, uh, uh, and uh, whoever hacked uh, um, C Cleaner did it very cleverly. They essentially said when you download updates of this product, which many, many people have. I've used it. Uh, um, when you download the update, uh, as you might have automatically said you want to do, it also downloads the malware and takes over your uh, uh, computer. Uh, and since that um, uh, was announced by TELUS, uh, Cisco has done an analysis of the Hackers command and control server showing that where there were at least 18 tech firms, Intel, Google, Microsoft, Akamai, Samsung, Sony, VMware, HTC, Linksys, D-Link, Cisco, uh, that were compromised and were sending and receiving signals from the command and control server, which raises the question whether this was a major cyber secure, or a cyber espionage effort. Uh, there's some little not very compelling uh, attribution suggestions that it might be Chinese origin. Uh, um, uh, what I was interested by is that Cisco says, oh, we got this, these files from the command and control server, and uh, 
Well, we don't know exactly where they came from, but I, everybody knows where they came from. They came from somebody hacking the command and control server and taking all the files off it. And as a result, 18 companies know that they've been screwed and that they need to get on top of it. Uh, uh, and then there was a long article uh, kind of tying into that by Joseph Cox in the Daily Beast talking about hack back and uh, stealing back your files uh, uh, that for the first time says what most of us in this field have suspected, which is it happens all the time. Uh, lots of companies are doing it. Uh, they can't talk about it because they're afraid of the Justice Department. The further you are from the Justice Department, uh, if you're in Israel, for example, you're a little more comfortable saying, yeah, I, uh, that's what we do. We, we hack back. And there are even a few companies that now say we facilitate hack back. Uh, um, it, this is a nice concrete example, and I think the CC, CC cleaner, I'm going to call him that. Uh, you, you call him C cleaner. All right. Uh, it shows the real social value of hacking hackers is that you can identify and stop uh, attacks. Now, Jeremy, you and I have talked about this before, so I know where you stand. Uh, um, does this move the effort to uh, legalize some form of investigative hackback uh, further down the road? hope so. But I, I want to just take a step back and emphasize something that you, you, you left out, I think, or that was worth emphasizing, which is um, anybody who is launching this kind of uh, enterprise is not going for a particular company. Right? right. They're saying we want to have access to potentially hundreds of companies that are using this product. It's right? the hacker equivalent of kill them all, like God sort them out. Well, you know, he, that expression, hacking, makes it sound like, hey, we're just kind of doing a little, you know, probe here, a little check there. But actually, this is like search for extraterrestrial intelligence, right? We're just kind of covering whole quadrants right. of the sky, right? And this could and and it's not valuable unless you can follow up. So this really has to I mean ultimately the client has to be the intelligence service of a nation state. It does seem like it, yes. Really. Right? It's just it's way too much information for some kids fooling around and looking for a blackmail. Scheme. Oh, and this was this was too hard. I mean, that's right. They, it they was very hard. You're planning ahead. You're planning years ahead. Yes. That's right. So it's a very very ambitious undertaking. And here's another thing which people aren't thinking about: Is it possible we could have a project on this scale? And so people must be talking about it somewhere in right. Shanghai, mm -hmm. and the NSA has no clue. And my guess is they had plenty of clues, but they don't regard it as their job to alert American companies. I'm, I'm not as convinced of that uh, uh, because um, the number of people who – the number of nations that could have launched this keeps growing. Uh, 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 You're saying the NSA might not have known. They might not have known. No, so, so, but but if they had known, would they have put out an alert to all the companies? And that is at least a challenge for them because when they learn things, they don't want to immediately share them because that compromises their own so access. So there's many ways to, to, to pull somebody aside, whether it's DHS or Cisco cybersecurity researchers and say, you ought to look here. Uh, and and my guess is that's how they would handle it uh, because an insecure U.S. infrastructure is not in NSA's interest. Right. Uh, on the other hand, it seems to me 
an episode like this is a reminder that it's good to have other actors in this sector, e- even just to disguise what the NSA is doing uh, sometimes. Absolutely. And, and um, they certainly don't have the resources to go looking for every one of these uh, and to compromise every um, command and control server to find out what right. it's been doing. Uh, right. uh, that's why it makes so much sense to let companies do it because they have skin in the game already and they have resources that uh, are greater than even NSAs when you combine them together. And a lot of people seem to be willing to mention this, at least in a vague sort of way, to journalists, right? So, yeah. you, so you've moved a little further down I mean, the road. The Overton window is, it's, it's you know, you, you can get your hand under it now. Yes, right? that's right. Uh, the, that's right. Uh, uh, that's as interesting as what happened. Yes, exactly. That we're being told about it. Yes, I, I completely agree. I, it is, um, I think even... The Justice Department has given up on the idea that this is immoral or a bad idea, and is just saying, "Well, it's illegal." Well, that's a that's a big step back uh, because if it's illegal but a good idea, then it's not going to be illegal forever. Okay, uh, two other uh, uh, legal issues, and then a couple of uh, short hits. Uh, the FTC took a hit. They uh, had decided to go after D-Link for it. Uh, uh, Internet of Things insecurity, um, but they uh, they couldn't show that anybody had actually been harmed by the uh, lack of security on the D-Link uh, uh, security cameras, uh, uh, and a judge has dismissed chunks of the FTC case, uh, uh, saying you know that's not good enough, uh, uh, and uh, but I think you know he gave them enough guidance so that. Uh, um, it, it will be relatively straightforward for them to say, but you misrepresented what you're selling, and uh, it is not as secure as you said, and that gives us a basis for pursuing you. So I'm not sure this is going to be a fatal uh, a blow to the FTC case, uh, and it may just require them to uh, replead parts of it. Um, and uh, OPM uh, got sued, big class action, mostly driven by the uh, – public employee unions, and uh, all those dis- disputes, as far as I can tell, have now been dismissed, mainly on standing grounds. Nobody can show they were harmed. It strikes me as a little bit uh, kind of uh, blind- willful blindness on the part of the court. Right? It's stolen by the Chinese uh, to get information on everybody who works for the government, uh, and you can assume they're going to use it to um, harm people in ways that uh, – serve the interests of the Chinese government, which might be uh, a later blackmail, might be identifying uh, uh, intelligence agents. Uh, uh, pleading that is probably not what people want to do. Oh, yeah, I'm an intelligence agent, so I'd like to, uh, to plead a case. So demanding that you show that the Chinese also used your credit card strikes me as a little odd. Uh, uh, but uh, he's probably right that the Privacy Act uh, doesn't cover this. It dis- covers disclosures, not um, uh, negligence, uh, theft of your stuff. So, uh, and I, there was no way this was going to be a class action. So uh, maybe he's doing the, the unions a favor by knocking this case in the head early. Okay, uh, let's see. Three or four other things. WikiLeaks put out its first um, Russian 
materials, a set of materials, uh, uh, sort of Russian, sort of materials. That it's a, uh, a private company that was advertising that it can do all kinds of surveillance and data retention stuff. Uh, uh, and my take on this is that there's no reason why the Russian government would be particularly unhappy. Uh, so it doesn't do much to uh, uh, shake. Assange's reputation as uh, the willing dupe of Russian intelligence. Um, uh, Maury, did you you looked at this? And I know you do stuff involving uh, um, Russian intercept law. Uh, did it look to you like this guy was just saying, "Here's how to comply with Russian law"? Yeah, it did. I, I didn't think this was particularly news at all. I mean, the Russian surveillance system, SORM, requires you to put capabilities in your network and basically turn those capabilities over to the Russian government. I've had clients over there that have been in the market for uh, compliance solutions. And, you know, we have the same thing in the U.S. with Kalea, where you need to buy a solution that allows law enforcement to um, to connect to networks. I, I think it's just that. I, I see nothing... Uh, revelatory or leaky about this. So, in fact, uh, Assange is just providing free marketing services to a Russian company. Uh, uh, this would be consistent with his reputation uh, rather than inconsistent with it. Uh, cute. Okay. Oh, the SEC got hacked, uh, and uh, in an irony, they believe that uh, the uh, uh, the hack of Edgar, their uh, uh, online data disclosure uh, system, uh, resulted in insider trading, uh, I uh, you know if it had been a private company, the SEC would already be investigating the uh, uh, the company that provided this database. But uh, of course, they can't. Uh, uh, so it's a deeply embarrassing situation for the SEC, uh, um, a, and we'll probably learn more about it. But uh, uh, for now, it's just uh, it's just embarrassing. Um, Facebook has. Back down on its claims that the content of ads are necessarily covered by privacy uh, uh, terms. Uh, as you remember, I predicted this was going to end badly uh, for social media, and uh, it looks like they uh, they took my advice and cut their losses and have uh, agreed to disclose their uh, uh, their ads to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, and there was a story uh, uh, out. Um, a kind of where are they now story about uh, Rudy Giuliani and his uh, cybersecurity advisory committee, which was announced with great fanfare uh, during the transition. Uh, I, and essentially the story says uh, nobody has seen any real sign of the working group doing anything uh, much since then. So if you were wondering, that's pretty much um, where we stand. Uh, um, why don't we jump to our interview uh, uh, because I want to give uh, Jeremy time to discuss this book. Uh, Striking Power, How Cyber Robots and Space Weapons Change the Rules for War. Uh, I would say um, if the FTC were investigating book titles, you might have a couple of problems here. Uh, first, you're you're not saying that, that robots and space weapons change the rules of law. You're saying the rules of law mostly have nothing to say about them and the people who are telling us uh, that, that the rules of war uh, apply are just full of it. Um, and second, even though you're selling robots and space weapons and stuff, 
at least the first half of this book, is just a delightful pantsing of international human humanitarian law, uh, starting with um, a, a boldly starting with the UN Charter, which you say is. Uh, uh, pretty much out to lunch about how the world works today, and then moving on to the uh, um, uh, additional protocol of the Geneva Convention uh, uh, from uh, uh, the 1970s. Uh, uh, so let me ask you to start uh, with the thesis of the book, because it's a, there's a lot in here. It's a great book. It's really well written. Uh, you and John, you are both fine writers. I learned something on just about every page. So if I had to defend against the FTC uh, making these claims that it's a misleading title, I would say uh, it says rules for war and not rules of war, ah, let alone yes. law of okay. war. And it is really the argument is not so much the technical uh, legal doctrine about using this weapon in this context. It's about the way we think about war. Okay, how do we win? Well, I mean, what we think is war. Right. And one, one of the things, I mean, this is not uh, extrapolation into some high-tech future. We, we have lived through this just in the Obama era. Uh, President Obama was launching cruise missile strikes with a high degree of, let's say, confidence. Right, mm-hmm. N- not only in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan, sometimes in Yemen, in various places. Somalia, maybe too. Somalia, right? And was that war? Right? And it didn't seem to occur to anyone that he needed to notify Congress, let alone get authorization. There was this comfort level with, well, it's a strike, it's a jab, it's something. It's not the same kind of commitment or the same kind it's of forward-leaning dis- defense. It's right? something, right? And and I, I'm not. I'm not saying this to um, criticize the Obama administration, but just to say we, we've already become accustomed to the idea that advanced technology allows you to intervene in a way that doesn't seem like an intervention. Or it doesn't seem like a war. It, Definitely, it, yes. right? And so that, I think, will further erode the sense that, oh, no, the UN Charter puts a limit on when and how you can intervene because we can do it let's say, less disruptively and less dangerously, not only to us, but to the people that we're attacking. So I, I, this, this is what I, one of the yeah. things that I hadn't yeah. focused on. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I yeah. can't – I wish I had back all the yeah. hours I had I uh-huh. spent listening to people talk about when, what is an uh, 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 appropriate uh, uh, determination that uh, under the U.N. Charter that uh, a cyber something right. results in right. uh, armed conflict, right. or, uh, and I thought, God, this this seems utterly arid. What yes. you're telling me is it was stupid too, because yep. the UN Charter is based on the idea that um, uh, there is this group of five people plus the general uh, five nations plus the general assembly. They'll make sure everybody. They'll be the cops on the beat. They'll stop people from doing uh, bad things. Of course, you can strike back in self-defense, but otherwise, never again can you launch an attack uh, on so, another country. So, so I, it's one part of it is what you said that they wildly overestimated how responsive the Security Council would be, but they also underestimated. Uh, how threatening and dangerous things could be, which 
didn't quite amount to an armed attack. What the UN Charter says is you can't use military force unless you are the victim of an armed attack. And that's why people start parsing, what does that mean, armed attack? And however that looked in 1945, once you're talking about uh, dangerous regimes getting nuclear weapons, you don't want to wait until they use them. Yeah. It's really scary for them to develop the nuclear weapons. And the proof that the world gets that is uh, when Israel attacked Iraq's nuclear program in 1981, there was a fair amount of discussion, and actually even the Reagan administration said that was wrong, although nobody but really when thought... when they took out the Syrians, they, that's nobody right. cared. That's right. When they took out the Syrians, we said, okay, we get it. Yes. Right. right. So uh, the, the dead North Koreans were just sort of a Right. Bonus. So, I, I mean, at this point, I think everyone, if if... I'm not saying there is, but if there were a uh, way to undo the nuclear program in North Korea, well, let's go back a step. There was an effort to do this against Iran, the Stuxnet right. uh, cyber inter- Nobody condemned it. Yeah. Nobody condemned it, even though it's hard to deny that it was in some sense a use of force. And so, that we hadn't been attacked by Iran. So let me let Brian in here to, to, to provide, to defend the, uh, uh, you know, the fundamental international uh, law uh, uh, charter of the post-war era. Um, a, the, it has been possible for the U.S. government to say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're in the, yeah, we're, what we're doing is, uh, it's a kind of anticipatory self-defense and uh, 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 countries are unable and are unwilling in, in, in the case of uh, terrorism or we think people are imminently going to attack us so we can do these things or what we're doing isn't, you know, we're not going to admit it so you can't really claim. But it does feel as though uh, what we are seeing is, at the level of people understanding uh, the uh, the rules, um, the rules don't make sense. They, they 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 don't fit the current world. And the idea that you have to have an armed attack before you can respond with force is, um, as a practical matter, fraying badly. I have a slightly different take on this issue. I, I think. Um, that the I think you're right, and Professor Rabkin is right that the idea that you have to wait for an attack to occur before you can strike back is uh, it doesn't make sense uh, in in and particularly with nuclear weapons and other you know, uh, WMD uh, where it would be catastrophic to wait for an attack before taking some action. Um, and I actually think that there is a consensus amongst the nations, particularly the warfighting nations, who agree that the standard that is relevant is more a, an actual attack or an imminent threat of an armed attack. Um, an imminent threat, uh, in my view, it kind of depends on what kind of weapon you're talking about. Um, in, in, in part, the seriousness of the effect of that we- weapon might change how you might think about the imminence of the threat. So if you're talking about somebody who has a nuclear capability, who has decided they want to use that against the United States, you might think about that differently than somebody who's got a shotgun uh, who's sure. thinking about something. Okay. I, I, right. So you could say, all right, we're going to make the special rule for... Uh, I just, uh, I just want to highlight that you, you, Brian started by saying um, 
uh, imminent attack, and then you shift it to imminent threat. Mm-hmm. And if the if the standard is imminent threat, meaning this will become threatening if we allow it to continue, mm-hmm. then I'm totally on board. But that's actually mm-hmm. different from imminent attack. We don't know that Iran is planning to attack us imminently, but we still want to stop them from getting nuclear weapons because it would be threatening for them to have but nuclear in, weapons. In, in, you know, if, you, if what you say is, well, you, you, you can't go around attacking people out of the blue. You know, we, we, we sent all those cruise missiles to Syria right. because they used chemical weapons once right. on somebody that, that not us. Right. Uh, uh, or Libya, and we're, right. we're, we're, whether, whether we're going after Gaddafi and his family or after the regime, we just said, yeah, we're shooting at you. Uh, or Kosovo. I mean, when you start putting together the examples of times when people have just, when states have said, we're coming across the border, we're using force because we don't like what you're doing. I, it starts to look as though everybody's pregnant, uh, and it's hard to say that, uh, you know, having sex is out of the question. I don't think I've ever wow. heard it quite described that way before. <laughs> uh, in all the criticisms of the United States use of force that I've heard over the, over my own career. Uh, so that's a new one for me. Yeah. Um, I, you know, Look, I, I think that there's a lot of criticism of the United States war against Al Qaeda and the Taliban, uh, which, you know, the, the idea that you could have an, a, an international and armed conflict in different countries against a terrorist group has been very controversial. Um, I think my own view is there's a framework that makes sense that's based in the UN Charter that, that, uh, justifies the use of force in places like Yemen, if, Pakistan, if, if, Afghanistan, I, 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 Somalia. By the argument that these are all, these are all, this is all one organization or descendant of one organization mm-hmm. and these are all governments that are unable or unwilling to prevent them from attacking us so mm-hmm. we can go in and attack them. But, uh, that wasn't our airstrike over chemical weapons mm-hmm. in Syria. That wasn't what we did in Libya. That wasn't what we did in Kosovo. Uh, and that's just us. I mean, uh, everybody else is just as Mm-hmm. Let, let me just sum up. A lot of people who, when they look at the U.S. Constitution, say it's a living Constitution. Yeah. And so there's the right to abortion clause, which hadn't been known for right. centuries, and the same-sex marriage clause, which hadn't been discovered. So suddenly, when they look at the U.N. Charter, they become textualists and originalists. Yes. Right. And really, what we're advocating is not that people just disregard any consideration about what rules should be, but that... The rules have to be adapted to our circumstances, and our circumstances are not only what we've been talking about, the things can be extremely threatening, even though it's not yet an armed attack, but also that on the other side, you have ways of responding, which are not as destructive as we're going to send 200,000 troops to Normandy beaches. This this was, was, I thought, a big part of what you were saying is that... States are looking for ways of exercising coercion, of saying, I am bigger than you, and I really dislike this, and I'm going to make it really painful if you keep it up, Uh, which states have done since the uh, invention of states. Uh, And there was the implication that the UN Charter sort of got rid of that uh, armed coercion. And what you're saying is we've rediscovered it because it works and it's better than uh, and, nuclear war. And, and I also want to emphasize the whole history of international law up until 1945. Writers who said, I am expounding natural law and the law of nations. Writers who thought they were giving a rather moralistic account provided for this. They very well understood that sometimes you have to retaliate. 
Sometimes you have to have reprisals. You have to have sanctions. You have to have responses. So they didn't think, well, you can just use force whenever you want for any reason. Not at all. They did not think that. But they, on the other hand, thought, well, if you are threatened or if your basic rights have been violated, then, of course, you're entitled to use force because that's how we maintain law in the world. So on that theory, we can stop worrying about when uh, the use of cyber tactics constitutes an act of war. Uh, it's an act of coercion, and uh, while you could argue that it's a violation of the Charter, it's life. So we should just stop worrying about I, it I wouldn't and go start quite doing that far. It. I wouldn't go quite that far. <laughs> I would say we, we better have a... Um, worthy reason to respond. And worthy means, I'm not saying we always have to explain it, but something that we could explain. That it isn't just, it seemed like a good idea, or we never liked those people anyway. It has to be responding to some legitimate provocation that justifies the response. And if you say that's too nebulous, I just say that's the history of the world prior to 1945. And the truth is, it's the history of the world since 1945. So you also spend uh, time, uh, it's an even more effective pantsing of the additional protocol, uh, yes. uh, which, you know, if if the U.N. Charter is um, U.S. delusions, 50 to 100 years of delusions about what international law should be in, in a, uh, uh, taken to their extreme, and it is, uh, then the additional protocol is... Um, the nadir of the American reputation uh, uh, and American self-confidence uh, taken to its extreme. Uh, uh, it was basically uh, a sack dance uh, by the people who won the Vietnam War. What well, nuts. Uh, saying, you know, all those tactics they used on you, that's all great. We love that. Uh, we're not going to punish that. You can't do anything about it. But uh, we're going to, was it Jean Piquet who said, uh, um, we can't abolish war, but we can make it too complicated to actually carry out? Uh, yes. uh, I thought that was brilliant because that is actually a 50-year strategy that we've seen. Um, what is it? that you thought was most problematic about applying that 1977 protocol to uh, new weapons? Yeah, so the main thing that's relevant to this is um, that really crystallized the idea that you cannot attack a target unless it's a military target. You must leave civilian targets uh, alone because that's wrong to attack civilian targets. And people who repeat this say, well, it's there in the additional protocol, and they're not impressed when you say, wait, we're not a party to it. They say, well, everyone else is. Right, which makes it uh, so uh, it's international law. law. It's customary it's law. now. Now, it has this tremendous advantage of being written down, and you can assign it to yes. students, including, you know, trainee right. JAGs. So it seems like, oh, yeah, that is the law. And they even call it the basic rule. But um, it's at least an exaggeration of what the rule used to be, um, because previously... There were all sorts of situations in which it was just accepted that you might go after civilian targets. And the reason why people were squeamish about it, rightly so, was it was hard to do without killing a lot of people. And if you're going to kill a lot of people, then it's really a bad thing to do unless you're sure that it's really necessary to defeat the enemy army. But we're now in a situation where you can do a lot of... uh mayhem, let's say. You can do a lot of damage without hurting anyone. The Stuxnet attack there on the Iranian nuclear program, it, it didn't 
even scratch anyone. It did no harm to human beings, but it really, for a time, really stopped their um, enrichment of uranium. Uh, and the Iranians said, hey, whoa, 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 this is a completely civilian undertaking. They didn't say it was military. They said it was civilian. And we didn't bother with that distinction. We just said it's scary. I think it would have been reasonable for us in the right circumstance if we're having a confrontation to um, shut off the lights in Tehran for a week, which doesn't necessarily do any direct harm to anyone. I mean, it might for a few people, but, I mean, there are a lot of things you can do that are painful now, which affect civilians. It makes civilians unhappy, but it doesn't kill people. And in a situation where you actually have this degree of precision and choice, you might want to rethink that rule, particularly since that this is one of the main reasons to go back so much of the book is kind of what was the law of war going back centuries. It's to highlight that what we think are the rules now, this is a very, very recent development and a contested development. I mean, the United States isn't a party. Other countries um, went along with with various reservations. So we shouldn't allow this to paralyze our thought. We shouldn't say, oh, too bad, it's illegal, that's the end of it. Yeah. I, well, I, I, oh, there, there are a couple of nice plates uh, in the book where you say, uh, yeah, so what that would mean is if you follow the uh, additional protocol, um, it would have been illegal for the Allies to bomb the uh, railroads leading to the concentration camps because that's all civilian infrastructure. Uh, it's, or it's, And maybe the Emancipation Proclamation, it's, too. It's better than than that, uh, somebody who wrote a book about uh, actually cyber, the law of cyber conflict, which is in itself amazing. There's already half a dozen extensive works oh, yeah, on this, right? We're on, and it's all town it's, manual to right. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, people just are. So, the, and by the way, these are not military people. They're not even government people. They're just people saying, "I've read the treaties and now I extrapolate." But so, but so, a European scholar said. Well, it is a little bit awkward that if we say you can't go after anything civilian, it has to uh, be directly related to military advantage, then we couldn't have attacked, uh, we couldn't have attacked the camps or the, yeah. the rail links. And yes, the Emancipation Proclamation would seem to be, um, at least questionable. So, I mean, people, people should just remind themselves that war wasn't fought by such strict rules in the old days, and we do not have as much need to worry about things that they rightly worried about when weapons were so much more indiscriminate. So to pull it back to the three weapons that you want to talk about, cyber and robots and space, um, what I thought was interesting is that uh, in both of the big conflicts of the 20th century, um, we went into them believing that a particular tactic was highly likely to be or affirmatively determined uh, was a violation of laws of war. Submarine warfare right, in World War One and uh, the uh, 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 mass uh, civilian bombing from the air. Uh, and by the end of those wars, uh, um, we'd more or less given up on those things. And uh, the United States, uh, by the time of uh, after going to war because of s- submarine warfare in World War One, launched submarine warfare from day one uh, in World War Two. And and it's not just the technology; it's the strategy. What they were really concerned about before the First World War, at least they did talk about this. Okay, you have a blockade. What kind of things can you exclude? Mm-hmm. And people were had great uneasiness about food blockade. Right. And then they did it. 
Yeah, they didn't do it immediately. I mean, they worked their way up to it, right? Uh, and in the Second World War, it was from day one, we're not going to allow food into Germany right. because they might eat it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and that would strengthen them. So, no. But right? meanwhile, they were edging their way up on civilian bombing, which, right. which sat and so, there and for months and months without the, And it is the same story with bombing, which is before the Second World War and even in the first year or so of the war, they're saying, well, of course, we wouldn't just use this indiscriminately because that would be wrong. And over the course of the war, they really get comfortable with that idea. And by the end, I think they genuinely thought, well, we're not trying to kill people. But they certainly understood and was their main justification. It'll really wreck the cities that we bomb, and so they won't be productive places. I mean, it, what, they weren't really serious about we'll get this factory or that factory. They didn't have the accuracy. So, yeah, the, the idea of what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed uh, changes under the stress of war. And one of the reasons why it's worth arguing about this in advance is I think some of the most valuable applications of these technologies are not to all-out war. God forbid we have an right, all-out war. But, but, but things that are short of that, yes. which are coercive, which yes. demonstrate and which might help us, And which might help us to avoid an all-out war. So um, let, let me ask uh, Brian for enough a quasi-official take on the well, additional you just, protocol. You should just report that he's sitting here very calmly. He is. Well, he should be because his, his is, eyes did he, not bug he, out. He, he didn't the, swoon. Well, under the, the U.S. Table. didn't sign it, right? So we can say that we're not uh, uh, party to it, but it doesn't. It, it does seem to me that it infects our internal decisions about what's proportionate, our, our decisions about uh, how much in the way of civilian casualties or civilian harm we can uh, accept. And even if the State Department isn't urging this, the JAGs inside are saying, well, you have to bring every weapon to us to decide whether it's uh, appropriate under the laws of war, including things that sound a lot like the additional protocol. Yeah, so I, I I didn't want to interrupt. You guys were having too much fun there. <laughs> we clearly were. Uh, so, and I'm not sure exactly what you want me to respond to at this point. You're right that w- the U.S. is not a party to Additional Protocol One. Uh, I think even as of uh, the Obama administration, it's been pretty clear that the U.S. has pretty strong uh, problems with Additional Protocol One. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, and I don't think the U.S. considers a- Additional Protocol One to reflect. Uh, law, law. law that we as right. a country would think we need to follow. I'm, I'm just speaking in my own personal capacity, yeah. not even close to a quasi-official capacity here. Um, I, I think the U.S. does believe that there are laws of war as a matter of customary of international course. law. Um, I happen to think that that's a good thing. I think that these are things that have developed over time. They've taken yes, into account yes. the circumstances yes. of war. Uh, and I think that they... Um, I think that the structure accounts for some of the things that you have, we've just been talking about here. Um, I don't think, for example, that the distinction between civilian and military targets is as hard as a military target is an Air Force base, mm-hmm. a civilian yes. target is, you know, anything else. Anything else. <laughs> um, I think that it's much more nuanced than that. Uh, and uh, I, I also think that thinking about civilian casualties is, regardless of it, whether you're doing because of a pro- additional protocol one or not, is an essential part of how you fight a war. Yes. Uh, so um, it's I, – I, and I, I don't think, Stuart, that at least for the United States – that the fact that we're not party to AP1 means that it infects kind of our view of what the rules are. I think if my own experience has been when we're not party to one of these IHL treaties, 
we make it pretty clear that we want nothing to do with that particular treaty. Uh, and we'll, we will put our own reservations on record as we have with the Senate, as we have um, in testimony, as the military has in the Law of War Manual, as to what they see as problematic with, with those doctrines. So I don't think that that somehow impacts how the U.S. views the legal Although, law. you know, to, to the extent that we ever find ourselves in front of the International Criminal Court, uh, the uh, uh, additional protocol is going to be uh, relied upon by everybody else, isn't it? Yes. So you're advocating for the ICC to take jurisdiction no, over the I, I, No, but I, I, it, is, it is hard to ignore the fact that the ICC um, would love to take jurisdiction com- and, yeah. and, and, and is sneaking up on it, on it in various ways. I think that the, the fact that we would have a problem with AP1 would be about objection 27 on our list <laughs> of objections to the ICC asserting jurisdiction over U.S. forces. Right. I, I agree with that, but I, I do want to just – Sure. I thought about this, of course. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point of carrying on about AP1 as it were not parties? Uh, so the first thing is actually the American position is not don't mention it, we don't want to hear about it. The official American position is we have a few problems, but most of it we accept as customary law, and we're not going to tell you which is which. So if you look at the Department of Defense manual, which is whatever it is, 1,800 pages or something. They're constantly citing AP1. I'm not saying that the the citations, the individual ones are improper, but Mm -hmm. they're sort of embracing, like, oh, yeah, that's a resource. And I know from talking to students, uh, this is what's taught if you become a JAG. They they give you a course on the law of armed conflict, and, of course, you study Mm -hmm. those treaties. And and the the American position has been over decades, uh, look, we don't want to quarrel unnecessarily. So we don't want to highlight the places where our view is a little different. We reserve the right to disagree. But that's not the same as saying, no, we insist on these large exceptions. And here's where you see that it matters. So the Talon manual that we were talking mm-hmm. about, this, this NATO-sponsored project. Quasi-NATO. Yeah, exactly. Quasi-NATO, but semi-official, right? And... The leading figures in organizing this thing are Americans and American military lawyers or former military lawyers. And uh, they get a bunch of people mostly from other NATO countries to say, oh, yeah, these are the rules for cyber conflict. They're constantly citing AP1, and they're constantly emphasizing this point. You can't go after a purely civilian target. You have to show that there is a military advantage in hitting this target. And... Gee, I mean, if your point is to get a hostile regime's attention and to say, we're going to hurt you and we're going to do things that you won't like, the theory here is, oh, well, if you have sanctions, you can sanction anything because that's sanctions. That's in a different category. But if you have cyber attacks, oh, no, that's military. And you can't have a military attack that hurts civilians unless it has some military advantage. So if we let the Treasury that's Department a crazy way if, of thinking, if let the right? Treasury Department announce kinetic sanctions, maybe we'd solve this problem. They in could- all seriousness, <laughs> we, are, we are weirdly on two different tracks there. Yeah. And if your aim is to be humanitarian, maybe you'd like to rethink this. Yes. Yeah. So I I, I don't want this um, yeah. to end without actually talking about what we uh, what the book title uh, hides, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. robots, space weapons, yeah, yeah. cyber. Yeah. You touched on cyber. Uh, um, so let's let's go to drones and robots. Yes. Uh, uh, you made the very nice point that uh, we've had automatic weapons. Uh, 
for about close to 100 years in the form of mines, which are just really dumb robots. Torpedoes. Uh, torpedoes. Well, at least tor- torpedoes you're shooting. Somebody shoots them. Uh, but the, in any event, um, I don't see people saying drones violate the UN Charter or that they violate even uh, AP-1. It's something else. They've got new law that they're making up, right? Well, let's say they're being creative. (laughs) They're certainly being creative. A lot of people have raised um, two questions. One is, this is too easy, therefore it should be illegal, because it tempts you to strike and say, oh, well, I'm not really striking, so this needs attention, right? This is what the UN rapporteur said. Right, fewer dead, we want fewer dead civilians and more dead pilots. Yeah, I mean, they're not even saying fewer dead civilians, they're just saying you don't have skin in the game, and that's bad, and that's somehow unfair and wrong. So you'll be tempted to violate the UN Charter. And they, oh, I see. So that's, that's how they what it back. Yeah, yes. That's what they're saying. It, 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 it undermines the UN Charter because you think that you're not really using force because you don't have people, right? Mm-hmm. But then the other thing they say is uh, implicit in all of these humanitarian standards for waging war is human judgment. And if you have machine judgment, that somehow undermines the moral integrity of warfare. And, gee, I have to say... This doesn't strike me as real compelling. I mean, it's yeah. almost a metaphysical point. It's like the machine and doesn't a have legal, a soul. It's not a legal argument. It's not really. really at least it doesn't seem yeah. to me. Although people try to make it. Right, a legal we want argument. dead pilots and dehumanized soldiers. Uh, the people who've gotten used. So to the, the argument that they make is uh, the principle of distinction that you can't just strike randomly implies human judgment in making the distinction. Because we're so good at it. Well, right. I mean, so that's not real compelling. But 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 okay. people do have this emotional reaction. So you, 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 what you, I, I think, have demonstrated is there are not a lot of legal problems with drones, uh, even even for people who buy the old and probably outdated. There, 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 there is, of course, a problem with the targeting. Okay. Because if you if you're picking a country that that has not engaged in an armed attack on you, you have to justify. No, it. and also, can you hit a civilian target? Yes. Do you have to show that it has military advantage to hit it? Uh, I think this will be an even more severe challenge when you get to robotic weapons that aren't as dramatic as drone strikes. At least with drone strikes, there's an explosion, right. and people in the vicinity are likely to get hurt. But we are now moving towards things like these. Uh, swarms of mm-hmm. UAVs. The, these are like little, tiny, little things, right. you know, which can like go into a window and do some harm in a particular room, right? Which might be the control room of a right. corporation or some facility. So it can have a big effect, but not an explosion. And I think that will start to raise the same kind of questions as cyber. Is it a use of force and so on? And how about space weapons? Again, when I, when I was done with this, I was thinking, well, you know, there aren't a lot of real, there are, there are at least there some treaty limitations. There are treaty, so there's, there's a treaty from 1967, which was very carefully negotiated by the Johnson administration when the Cold War was very intense. Right. And I think it's pretty clear that they meant to avoid covering things that they thought, no, we still need ICBMs right. to fly through space. But of course people take this as Oh, each one of the things that is prohibited is an example. Uh-huh. 
and 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 the sort of general spirit of it, and there is even language that sort of like we all agree that space should not be militarized. So then we have a dispute about what do you mean by militarized? But I think people do have um, qualms about uh, stationing e- even non-nuclear which is all we're talking about, uh, weapons in space, like attacking satellites. And I think it's right for people to think about this. We are not saying, oh, go on. It will be fun. Let's do everything. Well, There's some things that are very alarming, like knocking out uh, satellite communications. From my yes. sci-fi reading, yes. you, you don't need a lot of weapons up there. That's right. Just a few That's right. bits of That's uh, right. uh, enriched uranium uh, – sorry, just uh, uranium waste, right? So that's just yeah. very strong. Or steel. You just drop them. Yes. By the time they hit the ground, they yes. are a pretty substantial kinetic weapon. Yes. Um, okay. So let's sum it up. Uh, I, what I would say is you said oh, there's a lot of – kind of dumb, inapposite, outmoded international law floating around in the heads of law professors everywhere. Yes. Uh, uh, that, uh, 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 well, we're not law professors. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, Some sorry, right, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Lawyers who uh, now and, teach. And, and also, and also uh, NGO advocates yes. and foreign ministries of countries that are saying, why do we have to spend money on military hardware? Right. And so you're... Uh, you, what you're saying is there are all these technologies. Yes, you can find objections, and sometimes they're couched in law, n- not very effectively, even if you accepted AP1 and the UN Charter. Uh, and if you take those with a grain of salt, you're not going to find any legal objections to the existence of these weapons and their, their occasional use. But where you take that further is you say, these are opportunities for us to exercise with technical expertise uh, elements of coercion short of war that are designed to bring nations that are way out of line back into line uh, uh, without having to use full force. Elements, and we ought to do it without apology. Elements of coercion short of war are things we really need. And it's good to have an arsenal of things that we can use in that way. And we are actually developing a lot of different capacities. And the people who are raising either legal or ethical or strategic objections are basically saying, we don't want you to have that many alternatives. And we think presidents and other, I mean, leaders of other countries, if they're friendly countries, it's good for them to have alternatives. So, Brian, what's what's the principal objection you see to that view of the world? Look, international law is not perfect. It's There are exceptions to every rule. I'd say the same is true with domestic law, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, but I, I think it's important to have a framework that even if people violate the framework, that people agree that this is the right framework. And I think that framework is flexible. It has to be flexible to account for changes to technology and other things. But I think without a framework, you're kind of left with nothing. You're left with one person's best judgment as to what the right thing should be in the given uh, point in time. So does it does it permit bombarding people's ports because they aren't paying their debts internationally, say, which we used to do all the time? I don't, I, 
I don't know how to answer that story. Okay. No, it doesn't permit that anymore. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, that's, that's why there's sovereign debt. Yes. Yes, that's right. Well, you know. I, I, an, expression which, an expression which was not known in the days of gunboat diplomacy. Catapulting New York lawyers into their ports. Yes, is that's right. what we do now. Both more destructive and more likely to be a war crime in the long run. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, uh, Jeremy, any uh, uh, speeches uh, papers that you have coming up uh, 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 that our listeners ought to know about? No, but you'll be the first that I warn about this. Okay. Thank All you. right. Uh, uh, thanks to Jeremy Rabkin. Uh, uh, thanks also to uh, Brian Egan and Maury Schenk. Uh, uh, this has been Episode 180 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, don't forget, if you've got a guest interviewee to suggest uh, and they join us on the show, we'll give you one of our highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mugs. Uh, send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We're going to have Richard Danzig soon. Uh, we're going to have Martin Mick of Hacker One talking about bounties and how they work. Uh, Mike Solmeyer of the Belfer Center's uh, Cybersecurity Project is going to join us. He's also going to talk, I hope, a little bit about hacking back and uh, what uh, he's heard in some of the uh, meetings he's organized. Uh, so please mark your calendars for November 7 when we're going to have a live event here at the Steptoe renovated uh, facility uh, at DuPont Circle. Uh, uh, we'll be talking about election security law on election day. Um, if you go to the Steptoe.com website, there should be something on the splash page that says you want to register. Just let us know you're coming so that we can reserve a spot for you. Uh, we hope you'll join us then and uh, uh, throughout the year as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.